So very good morning, everybody. Tell me this, you ever taken a class, uh, school or college or anything like that, and you learned something and you thought to yourself at the end of it, I will never, ever again use that. <laughs> ever done that? Uh, I went to a college in Dublin and I, one of the classes I took was uh, Irish tort law. Tort, what is, what is tort? Irish business law, I have never used it in all my life, never once. In secondary school, our final maths exam, uh, I knew that they, they have every single year quadratic equations. I'm like, I better learn my quadratic equations. I have been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. Do you have any quadratic equations? Actually, don't come to me. That was like 30 years ago. I don't remember how to do them. <laughs> but I got my quadratic equations. I know how to do quadra quadratic equations. I have never once in all my life used that equation for anything. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because now we turn the corner into chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, this series that we're calling Ordinary Saints. And Paul's going to shift us from the first three. And here's what I would say. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, he's like, hey, you need to know this. Great stuff. But I want to shift you, and this is, it's a, it's a linchpin in the book. I want to shift you from, you need to know this, to, now that you know this, you need to do this. And that's what 4, 5, and 6 is. It's gone from, I want you to, to learn about this, to now I want you to practice it. And there's no doubt about it, the book certainly shifts in that kind of state. So here's a tiny little reminder of some of the major nuggets in 1, 2, and 3, where Paul's like, you need to know this. God has chosen you, and he loves you. Unity and a sense of peace in Christ. You were dead in your sins, but you've been made alive in Christ Jesus. And the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to you. He's like, I wanted you to know that. But the question comes, now what? So I'm, I was dead in my transgressions, but now I'm alive in Christ Jesus. Now what? The mystery of the gospel has been revealed to me. Now what? God has chosen me and loved me. Now what? What do I do with that, Paul? And Paul is going to sum all of that up in chapter 1 with one little phrase. And it's addressed to the church. So this is specifically for you and I. And here's what it is. Grow up. I want you to grow up. Kind of a little bit rude. But he means it. Literally in verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, We will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. A few years ago, uh, when my kiddos were a little bit smaller, we went over to Lake Michigan for the summer, and we're like, we're going in for a dip, and we're going to have a nice swim. But the wind was whipping up, and there were huge waves coming up on the, on the coast. But that didn't stop us. In we went, and my boys were smaller, and they were just getting knocked on their butts every time, these waves, and they were loving it. They were like, this is fantastic. But they couldn't get in at all. So they were small enough, I can't do this anymore, where I pretty much grabbed both of them around the waist, kind of their torso, and I just plowed into the water, and I went to that perfect distance where just where the wave peaked and just pummeled us. And we were just laughing our heads off, getting beat up by these waves. And I'd be all like, like you know when you can see them come, I'm like, boys, here it comes. It's going to get us. And they'd start screaming their heads off, and it would knock us back, and we'd get in again, and we were getting tossed around. The reason why I tell you that story is Paul says, grow up. Why does he want you to grow up? And here's what it is. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ. I don't want you functioning like an immature child. That's what Paul is saying. And here's the thing. You probably don't want to get function through your life like an immature child. I have met that follower of Christ. A gentleman, 50 years of age, loves God. Committed his life to Christ a decade ago when he was 40. 10 years serving God, learning from God, loving God. But you know what? That 50-year-old man is an infant. Never matured. Never grew up. Still with a bottle in his mouth when it comes to his walk with Christ. And that person gets knocked all over the place in life. Waves come and they will put you right on your tail. Look at the same scripture that I just read from the Living Bible Translation. Then we'll be, we will no longer be like children. Forever changing our minds about what we believe because somebody has told us something different or has cleverly lied to us and made the lie sound like the truth. Instead, we will lovingly follow the truth at all times. Speaking truly, dealing truly, living truly. And so become more and more in every way like Christ who is the head of the body, the church. Most people who come knocking on my door, the reason why they're knocking on my door is because some wave has come and it's knocked them down hard. And they're not sure what to do. And they're confused and, and, and it hurt. And they don't know which way to turn. Something's gone wrong with my marriage. It's unraveling. And I never thought that would be us. And this hurts. And I don't know what to do. I don't know how I got here. I seem to be angry all the time with people. I fly off the handle. And I don't, I, I don't know why I'm like this. And I don't know how to stop myself being like this. My kid's going down the, the wrong road. And I'm terrified. I am full of fear that they're going to end up making some pretty stupid mistakes. And that's a taste of... What all of us know and have experienced and have seen in our own lives. And I see that and I hear that. And Paul says, I see it too. And in the context of the church, Paul is kind of intolerant of it. He's like, I'm tired of seeing people just getting wiped out by waves. Because it's infancy in your life. And it's not that he's being heartless. It's because it doesn't have to be that way. Paul wants you to grow up. I want you to mature. I don't want to see you getting beat up and tossed around all the time. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, in my example of a marriage, that that's the cause for every and any marriage that, that seems to fall apart. But I do think it could be a massive reason where you have a man or a woman who are not grounded in the truth and not living that out, and there's not a sense of stability and maturity in their lives that, that could feed into your role as a husband and a wife and, and that that could actually do serious damage. So here's what Paul wants to do in chapter 4. He wants to give you the secret sauce for maturity. I really want you to grow up. And I think if you're sitting here today, you're like, yeah, I, I don't want to be a child. I, I want to mature. I want to grow up as well. And he's going to just lay out for you one or two little pieces here. It's the secret sauce of maturity. I'm going to read you four tiny snippets of scripture here from Ephesians. And I want you to catch the common theme here. I'm actually going to go back to chapter 3, 17. He says, I want you rooted and established in love. Chapter 4, I want you living a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Verse 2 of chapter 4, I want you completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing one another in love. Verse 3, I want you to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In order for you to grow up, 
you need to step into something. The common theme here, the huge precursor for Paul when it comes to growing up, is simply this. I want you to champion unity. Every one of those little verses were relationally speaking. I want you to be a defender of unity in your own life. Champion unity. The concept of harmony and unity. So in order for you to grow up, in order for you to mature, in order to prevent you from being beat up by life constantly where these ways are just knocking you off your feet, I want you devoted to unity. Now remember what he's doing here. He's moving us from a place of, look, I've, I've told you a few things, right? The mystery of the gospel has been revealed to you. You've been chosen and loved. You were dead in your transgressions. You've been made alive in Christ. Now we're going to take that and we're going to put it into action. That's what I want you to do. From idea to action. Unity in your life. Unity in your relationships. Unity in your marriage. Unity in your work. And your work may look like a catastrophe of chaos and discord. But you would be the difference maker in that equation. Unity in your marriage. Unity in your parenting. Look at what is repeated again and again. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Over and over again. And Jesus Christ modeled this for us incredibly well. It said he was actually, this is what it, how it described Jesus, said he was consumed with passion for this, for the house of God. That's why he went in with his whip and the money changers, flipping tables. You don't get to do that in the family of God, in the house of God. He was consumed with passion for this right here, for you and I, brothers and sisters, this gathering. He may still be, it may be still the number one priority of all his passions, in John chapter 17, it's this, almost like this kind of this final prayer before the cross. He says, I pray that they may be one. He's really serious about it. 1 Corinthians 1, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. That's a tall order. So what is this? You're all looking lovely here today. You've come in here. There we are together and we're singing. What is this? What are we doing? What are we really? We are not mere men. We are not mere women. We are not just some random group of people from this place or that place or from that family or from these people. We're not just a coincidental collection of misfits who live without a sense of vision or destiny. We are a people who have been born again of the Spirit of God. That is who we are. Within our spirits is the actual spiritual substance of Jesus Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is a holy gathering that you are a part of. That you give expression to. We are the bride of Christ. And our unity together is holy and essential. Our love for each other is holy and right. Collectively, we are the dwelling place of God on the earth. And the existence of disunity or disharmony, it discredits the gospel. The world will not believe a word we say. 
if we're splintered. The world will not believe an ounce of energy expended in serving them if they look at the bride of Christ and say, it's splintered. It's like someone coming up saying, hey, look at my marriage, my amazing marriage. This is the best marriage of all marriages. But everybody knows, secretly, one person speaks about their spouse behind their back and says awful things about them and thinks awful things about them and is unfaithful to them. People would look at a marriage like that and say, well, that's no marriage at all. Certainly no marriage that I want to be a part of or to model my own over. I don't want, to, I don't want anything to do with it. Paul says... One of the root causes and proponents and catalysts of spiritual maturity is you need to grow up. I don't want you staying like a baby your entire life as you follow Christ. And if you want to do that, you've got to champion unity. I don't want you tossed all over the place. You don't want that. Not knowing what truth is. Changing your mind incessantly. So here's the question. How are you at unity? I want you to gauge right now. What's the drama level of your life? What's the contention level of your life? Do you tend to get drawn into those things? Arguments, words, shouting back at somebody. To be an advocate of champion and champion unity. At home, at work. I'm on social media with a ton of you. We can do a little bit better, guys. <laughs> Are you quick to argue? Do you believe that you're entitled to snap back at people if they bark at you? Is that the way you go through life? Do you think your opinion is more important than someone else's? You're like, why did we come to church today? <laughs> do you become indignant, rude about politics, cultural issues with other people? Are you quick to take offense? If someone says something harsh to you, do you just say, well, then I get to fly off the handle? And then you do. If someone accuses you or complains towards you or points out faults in you, does it just do something inside of you where it's instant, like, how dare you? And what I've just described in the last 20 seconds, that is where the vultures will gather in your life. That is where they will pick you apart and eat you alive. They will toss you back and forth like a wave. They'll knock you onto your tail. Poor you. How, they don't get, nobody gets to talk to me like that. How dare they? I'm entitled to my, to my opinion. Well, hold on, hold on a second here. Who are we following? Nobody gets to speak to me like that. I have more dignity for myself than that. Do you see the lies that are tossing you back and forth? And all of these things, and many more, are unity killers. They are maturity killers. And if you live in a world, and you know your own life, where there's contention and drama and factions and disunity, and it can be disguised as, well, that's my right, or they're wrong, or I'm entitled to, then here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to get tossed to and fro for the rest of your life. I want to suggest to you today, there's a way to handle and defend unity in your home and in your work and with your children and in your marriage and yes, in the church. 
Paul says, you're loved and chosen. Paul says, the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to you. Paul says, you are dead in your transgressions. You've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Now, let's act on it. The occasions for taking offense are endless. You will be given a daily opportunity to be ticked off because somebody did or said something. And you can either be offended or... I don't even know if you've ever heard of this before. You can possess an unoffendable heart. Does such a thing exist in the kingdom of God? Very much. I, I don't read you something from a pastor. I just, this guy blows me away. Ready to be wrecked? Here's what he says. One thing I have learned is to humble myself when I'm criticized. Okay, how many people have I lost already? <laughs> One thing I have learned is to humble myself when I'm criticized. I mean, how many people would say that's your go-to reaction when somebody comes and is critical towards you? Instead of reacting or defending myself. He says, I try to listen and consider what I'm being told. I mean, this is wisdom. He says, I've been wrong enough times in life to know that perhaps the person speaking to, to me is right. They may actually know something about me in an area where I have been blind. Of course, being confronted by somebody is never very joyful. Indeed, when an individual finally has enough nerve to openly speak about what bothers them, their approach, it should be with gentleness, but maybe they'll come across nervous or maybe they will simply be unnecessarily confrontational. So he's being real. He's like, I, rec I, I recognize that sometimes someone comes up to you and they bite your head off. And that's hard to hear truth when they're barking at you. But look what he says. Even if they're partially right in their opinion, I could make good use of that complaint. <laughs> Who thinks like this? I don't do this at all. He says, humility listens. Even to a harshly spoken word and without re reacting, it rescues the truth from within it. Oh my goodness. The result is you discover an area that you had not seen. And instead of being offended and ticked off and drama and knocked back and forth, you become more like Christ. How many of us have that kind of maturity? How many of us have a little bit more room to grow? Yeah? Okay, seven of us are honest. <laughs> I just don't know that we're there yet. Look at what he says, and he's, to, he's talking about someone who comes up and they've got a nasty complaint to your, to your face. This is what he says. Humility listens even to a harshly spoken word and without reacting, rescues the truth from within the criticism. Unbelievable. And Jesus says, offenses are inevitable. You will have frequent, almost daily opportunities to be offended by rude, nasty, un ignorant, and unkind people. When life cuts you, do you have the maturity and the grow up and the championing of unity that when life bites you, are you just going to bleed anger or revenge? Or is there an opportunity for you to become more Christ-like in that moment? Watch the train of thought that Paul is giving us in this chapter. He says, you need to grow up, all right? I want you to grow up. So in order to do that, you're going to have to humble yourself and embrace unity. 
and fight for unity when it's difficult. In order to do that, you're going to need an unoffendable heart. <coughs> All right, Paul, we're tracking with you. Now what? And Paul says here, all of that is for a really good reason. It's tempting to think, well, if I do those things, I'll have less drama in my life, so it's personally beneficial. And actually, that's true, but that's not even what Paul gets to. He says, the, the reason behind this is outside of you and you getting something nice for you. Here's what it is. You have work to do. You need to grow up. You need to champion unity. And here's the why. Because you have work to do. So right now, and that's actually a very famous scripture in, in Ephesians chapter Paul, it's, uh, chapter 4. It's called a fivefold ministry. He says, I'm going to send you anointed people into your life to get you ready for the work that I have for you to do. These people are going to come and they're going to equip you with the tools that you need for God's work, for holy work. And if you are immature... If you're constantly getting battered around and beat up all the time, if you're living in offense and drama, here's what's going to happen. You're going to miss God's work. You're going to miss God's purposes and his mission and his jobs. Sometimes people come up to me and they complain. I just don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what God's will is for my life. But the truth is they are so caught up in drama and contention in their life. There's no way they could possibly find God's work. They miss the sense of kingdom. Simple analogy, a few years ago, when I get, when my boys were smaller, I had to get something down in the basement, and it was heavy, and it was bigger than I could possibly get my arms around. And I remember thinking, oh, I've got these boys. Let's, let's, let's make this worth something, right? But then I looked at them, I'm like, I can't. They're too small. Now I've got a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old. I sit on the couch, and I'm like, hey, boys, down the basement, get the remote. It's good stuff. Why couldn't they help me? Because they were, they were immature. They were too small for a great work, for a heavy load. They couldn't help me. They couldn't do the work. And if you fail to grow up, and if you fail to champion unity where you live, in your relationships, in your dorm, in your classroom, on the factory floor, in the office, at your home, with your children, with, your, with, with grandparents, with your, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, with all of these relationships. If you embrace drama and contention and disunity, you will simply miss out on what God has called you to do for His glory. You'll miss your part in the body of Christ in the church. Look at the people that God places in your life. Verse 11, He handed out gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church, until, look at the unity of this, until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully mature adults, there it is, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ, not dead in our transgressions. God says, I'm sending these people to you. I'm sending pastors and prophets and teachers and evangelists. All of these wonderful ministries. To what end? Why? To prepare you for work. To prepare you for the work of the ministry. To equip the saints. To equip the ordinary saints for the work of the ministry. Leaders in your life who are imparting truth and anointing and guidance and releasing you into the work that God has called for you. 
What is the purpose of this pulpit right here? Because that fivefold ministry, there's one standing right in front of you right now. I am a pastor in a local church and I'm preaching and teaching from God's word. What is the purpose of this? Is it to entertain you? Is it so that you'll walk out of here and say, I didn't know that. I, now I'm smarter. Is it so that you have increased knowledge? Is it to inform you? Is it to tickle your ears to make you feel good about yourself when you leave? Is it a pep talk to get you through the week and maybe you'll get back here okay for another pep talk a week from now? I would say to you that I do not preach the Bible. I preach the Bible to people. And what I mean by that is the purpose of the preached word of God is to equip you for life, for your marriage, so you can raise your children, so you can go out into your work and be unlike anybody else in your work, that you can be a light in a dark place so that you can love a person that God brings into your life who's extremely unlovable and has rough edges and has a problem with God and the church that you would be equipped to pour love into a person like that. God has called you today. Put your hand to the plow. I've called you to give and invest and serve. To carry great big things in the context of your weakness. To bear each other's burdens. To be open to being interrupted. And it is a great work. It is said of Jesus Christ that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took on the very nature of a servant. In ancient Greek, they have their fairy tales and their mythology. One of their little stories is that Zeus and Hermes came down to earth for a brief time and they disguised themselves as slaves. They did this to fool the human beings. They wanted to get a read on the level of homage that people were paying to them, to the gods. And when Zeus and Hermes found out what they wanted to know, they suddenly threw off their rags and they revealed themselves in all of their Olympian glory. You see, they took on the outward form of a servant, but you see, it was just a disguise. Jesus did not take on the outward form of a servant. Paul actually uses the same word to describe Jesus in his servanthood as he describes Jesus in his Godhead. Incredible. When Jesus came in the form of a servant, he wasn't disguising who God is. He was revealing who God is. Jesus did not come as a servant in spite of the fact that he is God. He came precisely because of the fact that he is God. So Paul says to you today, I want you to grow up. I want you to champion unity. You have work to do. This is what ordinary saints do. We become like Jesus. We do not remain as infants. We grow up, we champion unity, and we get on with the work that God has called every single one of us to do. Let me close with a story. True story. Not long after Bill Wilson found his sobriety, he realized he was in trouble because he realized that his sobriety would not last. He realized that he was this close to getting drunk. In desperation, he did something that nobody else was doing. He found another drunk. He looked to find another alcoholic. And he did. 
he found a man whose name was Dr. Bob. He had to tell Dr. Bob his story. And so ultimately, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob founded Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, Bill Wilson realized and he understood that the main reason for telling his story wasn't just to save Dr. Bob. If he didn't give away what was in him, if he didn't give away what he had, he knew that he was just going to go get drunk again. Church, we must minister. It's not only that there is a need to help other people. It is what God does in you when you help other people. We must minister out of our brokenness. It's not because we're strong. It's not singularly because other people need help. It's because if we do not help them, we will become hopeless relics. Why does AA insist on anonymity? The purpose is not so that people can escape exposure to the outside world of AA. But the founders knew that AA was to be used and it could never be leveraged as a vehicle towards fame. They realized the fatal lure of celebrity. The only way that they could grow up and avoid being tossed around by wave after wave and being beat up was to come together a united fellowship of drunks serving each other. This is the church. That is the kind of servanthood that Jesus has called us to. A society of sinners helping each other. Welcome to the society of sinners. Let me close with the same scripture. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for chapter 4 of Ephesians that you penned for us today. And Lord, for those of us here today, and we would self-diagnose ourselves with immaturity. Lord, I want to thank you for a moment like this, where in the safety of your presence, you would, Lord, you would bring us forward and not to remain stagnant with a lack of growth, where muscles are not being used, and where we just stay the same with a bottle of milk. So, Lord, save us from that. Save us from ourselves. Stretch us. Take us to the gym. We need a workout in you, God. I pray for every one of us here today, particularly those whose lives in this moment are wrapped up with drama and contention and fighting and words. And he said, she said, whether it's at work or at home or at school, Lord, wherever the context. Father, I pray that you would give us such wisdom that we would walk out of this place saying, okay, now things will be different. Because, God, I'm asking you to put in me an unoffendable heart. Protect our hearts, God, right now. And I pray that we would step into that friction and that tension with a whole different stance, a whole different posture that is found in Christ. Lord, we want to put our hand to the plow. Lord, thank you for the call in Ephesians 4 
to equip ordinary saints for the work of the ministry. And I pray that every single one of us would find ourselves with our sleeves rolled up for the kingdom of God. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.